Brother Kel laid a very good foundation for us yesterday with his address to the general theme, the unique teachings of the truth. And today we're looking forward to hearing from him on the subject, does it really matter what we believe or do? Thanks, Brother Kel. Thanks, Brother Chairman and brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a pleasure to assemble with you to, around the Word of God to consider those things that we hold near and dear those things to do with the truth of God. Just to emphasise, I'm going to go fairly quickly today, um, and I'm probably going to pick up the pace during the week, so if I'm not clear on something, please come and see me afterwards, and uh, if I'm wrong, tell me. And uh, if we need something clarified, just ask, and I'll uh, do the best I can. As I said, um, we're going to look at... We're trying to answer these three questions, which I've got on the slide here. What is the truth? Does it matter what we believe or do? How should the truth affect us? They're the objectives of the whole study. They're the three questions at the very end of this study that we're going to deal with specifically, and we're hoping that we're going to address those and addressing those as we go through this, this, this study. Um, brother reminded me yesterday that I actually didn't answer the first question, so I'll, I'll um, and thanks for that, and uh, he's quite correct. I actually had three extra slides, which I... Uh, because I didn't use my time very wisely, I skipped over, so I'll address that in just a moment. The layout is, of course, of this format, and this format we hope to address all of these questions. And today, as was just announced, what are core beliefs, and does it really matter what we believe or do? That's what we're going to focus on today. I said yesterday that there are five core beliefs. If you open your BASF and you read it, the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith, there's 30 affirmations which summarise our core beliefs. They not list, and, and I haven't listed in way I've laid out these five core beliefs, perhaps in the level of their importance, but rather in a convenient way just for this study. So don't think that I'm giving priority over one over another. But they match our summary as, as follows. Revelation is in fact the foundation of our BASF. Clause 1 is the teaching about God. Clauses 4 to 7 is about mankind. Um, clauses 2, 3, 8 to, tw- 8 to 10, 12 to 14 is about Jesus and his work of atonement. And of course, God's purpose to set up a kingdom on the earth is in clause 11 and 15 to 30. So I didn't just make that up. In fact, I didn't even realise that until after I'd done my study. So, but it is all there. These things we do understand and they are foundational to our fellowship and to our community as such. So just to recap... I'm suggesting to you that these five core beliefs are to be absorbed into our beings via our senses, into our hearts, by the word of God like a seed planted in us and it teaches us about God, about ourselves, about Christ and about God's purpose and that these things are to be manifested in the way we live. And I put this reference up, which I didn't quote yesterday, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And it matches what we find in the Old Testament when God endeavoured to dwell in the midst of the people. And the people were to manifest the things and the teachings of God in the way they lived, and they were to be a light to the world, as we are also called upon to be a light to the world. Now, I'm going to go through the law in just a little while, just to touch on a few things. I've got a particular way of um, trying to understand it. 
It's vital to remember God's purpose. Now, this is the part that I skipped over yesterday um, because I didn't manage my time very well. These core beliefs are firmly connected to God's purpose. Now, God's purpose is declared where you would expect it to be in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. They are fundamental to our understanding of everything that comes after. All the theology, all the expositional studies, all the the way that the apostles and Christ explain the Bible are all based upon what you find in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God plainly declared his purpose with man and with the earth. And he said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, perhaps of some of the most fundamental parts of the Bible when God said let us make man in our image and likeness God's purpose is to make people like himself then it goes on to say in in that same section that mankind were to multiply he made the male and female they were to multiply he says that they were to fill the earth he says that they were to subdue and have dominion over the whole earth oh hello so what has happened to me too now those things brothers and sisters this purpose was declared at the very beginning when you come to chapter 2, and I'm, I'm going to give you a little picture here. This is how I see it. You may disagree, you may not. This was God's purpose declared at the beginning. It's really the gospel of the kingdom of God. When you look at the record of chapter 1, the earth is filled with life. The record, the first three days, of course, is about the forming, and the second three days about the filling, and the earth is teeming with life. But I think that that life was wild. I know we sometimes have this concept of a pristine world, and I think it was pristine in as much as it fulfilled God's purpose. I don't think it was filled with savagery, the claw and the tooth and all that sort of stuff, but I think it was wild. It was not disciplined to the things of God. So God planted a garden, and he ordered that garden according to his will and purpose. And in that garden, he placed a man and a woman. And in that garden, they were to tend and to keep that garden and to keep the order of God. And they were to fulfill these, these words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. And they were to multiply. They were to have children. And I think that they were to extend the bounds of that garden until the will of God, which it represented, expanded and filled the earth. Now, I think, brothers and sisters, that is the primary teaching of the Bible. And I think when you couple that with these core concepts that we talked about a little bit earlier, these five core concepts, I think therein you have the truth. Therein you have the complete purpose of God. The pillar, as it were, in the the manifestation of the truth and the ground back in Genesis, the foundation of these things established by God. So that's what I think the truth is. And I think the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ is built upon that concept. And I think 
That's what the Lord's Prayer is about that was mentioned this morning. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And this passage in Numbers 14 verse 21. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And as, of course, Corinthians says that God might be all in all. There is the fulfillment of that grand purpose of God. Now, for these things to be real for us, there's a great importance for us that we understand what faith is. Now, there's two aspects to it, and I'm going to talk about one primarily today, and I'm going to deal with another aspect of faith later on. Our faith in God is an essential element in the overall purpose of God. To begin to understand what faith is, let us remind ourselves of what is written in the scriptures. It talks of Abraham being an example, and it talks about these things are written for us. And it talks about Abraham, it's that he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, God was able to perform as it says here, not written for him alone, but for us also, if we believe in God. Now, it doesn't simply mean believe in the existence of God or the love of God, but it means we believe what God says, that his word is true. It's more than simply understanding and knowing, brothers and sisters. And we're going to talk about that and perhaps develop that as we go through this study. In Abraham's case... This faith so persuaded him that it changed the course of his life. The choices that he made, the vision, the way he saw the life and the way he saw the world, and it changed his ways. And that's the impact faith should have upon us. I'm going to go to the... um, the way I think we should read the scriptures in just a moment, but I want to touch on this. There's the macro and there's the micro. I know it's sort of modern terms, a little bit trendy perhaps. Maybe it was 20, 50 years ago, I don't know. But it's common, a human trait, to miss the big, to miss the big picture. We get so engrossed in issues, small issues like the leaves, that we miss the tree. We miss the picture. As Jesus says, you know, you can strain at the gnat, the fly, and you can swallow the camel. We can argue over words and we can miss the context. We can focus on effects and we can miss true causes. Now, I'm not suggesting that details don't matter. I'm not suggesting it doesn't, a close study of the word isn't important. But Paul says, let the elders that rule well be counted double honour especially those who labour in word and doctrine. I'm not suggesting that at all, brothers and sisters. But I am suggesting that it's easy to get sidetracked by focusing too much attention on things involving taste and tradition. There's a natural feeling of safety in rules and traditions, but it's a dangerous path because these things, taste are my personal preferences and traditions are our corporate traditions, but they can take the place of the truth. It's a natural function of what they call normalcy bias. That is, we default back to what we're comfortable with. And there's one thing you learn from the words of the Lord and the teachings of the apostles is that God's trying to make us uncomfortable. Because when you get comfortable, you get complacent. 
and you treat the things of God as if they be common. He doesn't want that from you and from me. The Jews tried it, they lost their way. I believe Christianity in the whole, as they call it today, lost it as well. They got comfortable in their traditions and they lost the truth. And because I like little diagrams, because I see the world in models, maybe that's because that's how I worked, not that I even work with models, I mean, those good-looking people, but unfortunately business models. I see this TTT here. Here it is. This is how we are affected. And what we do is we move the truth. And I've got taste, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe 100, 200 years ago, when slavery was accepted. And there was a sort of a personal taste in the way people preferenced how they saw things. But what we're trying to do, brothers and sisters, is align ourselves with the truth of God. It's very important that we see that. Now, I'm not saying that traditions aren't important and that customs aren't important. I think they are, but they have their place. And they are definitely in subjection to the truth of God. And we must, if we are believers of the truth, we must take hold of that. Truth matters. If we're in God's house, it's his rules. It's not our rules. It's not, his, not our house. It's God's, and his rules must apply. God's truths are the ancient landmarks that are mentioned in the book of Proverbs and the book of Deuteronomy, which were set up under Joshua. And they have spiritual significance because God divided the land and he set the landmarks on which people were to live and to inherit the land and become part of the greater purpose of God. And understanding the macro and the micro helps me to understand and explain perhaps some of the errors that have happened in our community. And if we're very frank, brothers and sisters, some of our earlier brethren made predictions on times and events that didn't come to pass because they focused upon the micro. I'm not saying it's wrong, but they made mistakes. But the overall picture, the macro, the big things that we're talking about, these core teachings of the truth are unchangeable. They are like rocks. They don't change. So, Revelation is the Word of God. How do you understand the Word of God? How do we interpret it? What keys do we use? How can we be confident that we've got the truth? You see, it's not the Word. It's not knowledge of the Word alone that's in the, the important thing. But it's discovering in the Word... The character, the way, the will, and the purpose of God in the word. This is the real issue and the challenge we face, brothers and sisters, as students of the word. This is the constant appeal that God makes in the Bible. You know, the Jews in the first century could recite to you a whole prophecy of Isaiah. Who could do that here? They could explain to you all great slabs of the scripture, but they missed its essential teaching. So when we speak of the word, we mean its unique revelation of God and of his will and his purpose. Now, here's an example. Look at Romans chapter 12. Just think about what it says. I mean, we quote this all the time. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's a beautiful passage. But think about that concept. The whole world is trying to transform you. If you go to school, 
The education system's trying to shape you into something else. When you go to work, they're trying to shape you into a good little corporate citizen. If you're in politics, they're doing the same thing. It's all about transformation, and all religions are about transformation. All philosophies are about the same thing. But it's the next part of this verse, the part we don't quote, that really holds the power. He says that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think that's what our brother was talking about in in the earlier session. It's the will of God that's important. It's not knowledge of geography and history and sciences and all those things. It's understanding the will of God. That's what's going to make the difference. So when we, I'm not saying we shouldn't study those other things and learn them. They are vitally important. They're part of the framework, part of the support structure. But it's this that we're looking for, brothers and sisters. We're trying to discover the will of God and how we as people can align ourselves to it. And this is the image that we're to be transformed to. Okay, It's this will that works in us, that changes us into the image and likeness of God. That's really the essential teachings of the truth. And I could probably sit right down right now, but I've got a little bit more time, so I'll, of course, occupy that. As I said, I like diagrams, so you know, pardon me. Bear with me as I put these up, because I see things in images. Grasp the relationship between P, P and P, and I'll show you what that means. There's purpose, there's principle, and there's practice. You must grasp the difference and the relationship between the two. Purpose is what God has revealed and declared. What God is going to do, what his will is. It's the missing element in Christianity. You ask your average street Christian what the purpose of God is, And it's about God being on my side to help me in life with my problems. That's what impressed me about the truth, brothers and sisters, when I realised that God actually had a purpose with the earth and with mankind. It wasn't simply a matter of going to war and asking God to come along onto my side of the war, to this army and say, well, bless us as we fight. And there's a guy on the other side doing exactly the same to them as well. It's not about getting God on our side. It's us aligning ourselves with God. Understanding the purpose of God. God's purpose with us, with all of mankind and with the earth and how that purpose is going to be fulfilled. Now, when I look at it this way, and and as I said, pardon my um, diagrams, if you lived under the law of Moses, you faced exactly the same concept. But the way the law of Moses was structured as a teaching medium is the law affected how you dressed, what you ate, how you treated diseases, what was clean, what was unclean, how you worshipped, how you sacrificed, how you lived day by day. It affected all of those things because they didn't have a printing press. The word of God was precious. So God put his law in these things. And so it was a practice-based worship. Now practice, this is where the Jews got it all mixed up, the practice of the law wasn't the objective. 
The objective was that as a person lived under these, under these conditions, that they were to look back at the principles that stood below them. And then back from there to the purpose of God in the beginning. Now, we had, of course, read for us last night, 1 Corinthians 9. And it talks about, do not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. It's a firm principle in the law. Now, Paul says in two places in the New Testament, does God care for oxen? Or does it have another meaning? Is there a principle behind that teaching? Well, see, the whole law was designed that way. That the practice would lead a person to discover the purpose and principle of God. An excellent teaching mechanism. If, and, of course, the, uh, the priest's lips, of course, with a keep knowledge, they were to explain these concepts of God. What about us? We live under the law of Christ, but the same things apply, but it works differently. We live under a principle-based life. We don't have a lot of laws, but what is God's purpose in relation to current challenges? How should I align myself for that purpose? Understanding this gives us... um, Answers to almost all of life's difficult questions. This principle-based living points us back to purpose. Why am I doing it? What's the principle? What purpose stands behind that? And therefore, how should I live? What sort of life should I live? How should I practice these things? Consider this. We won't go into this because it's a fairly complex section, but consider Jesus' response to the Jews. You know, the Jews came to Jesus and says, well... And they had this, this particular view that you could put away your wife for any cause. If she burnt the cooking or you didn't like her anymore, you wanted to upgrade. Well, you just got rid of her, said, I'm divorced you three times, and off she went. And they quoted the law to prove their point. Moses said, give her a writing of divorcement and put her away. How did Jesus answer that question? Well, he took them back to the purpose. God made them. Male and female. He, went, he didn't argue from the concept of practice. He said, for the hardness of your heart, Moses gave you that law. But that's not how it was from the beginning. There was a purpose standing behind the concept of marriage. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses the same form of reasoning when he talks about Exercising rights. He says not all things are expedient. Because, brothers and sisters, God's endeavouring to get us to think like him. He wants us to see the world as he sees it, in alignment and align ourselves with his purpose. And when we see it that way, all these things that we think are problems are often just peripheral things. Because what we're doing is we're trying to bend life to suit the practices we want and the things we want. But we have to abandon that if we are going to be followers of Christ and we have to align ourselves with principle and purpose-based life. When you do that, everything changes. All right, we'll just move on because I'm probably talking too slowly. We must never lose sight of the two great commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. With all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. 
And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Therefore, love ought to be, it must be the motivating force that impels us, not compels us, but impels us from within to search out the knowledge of God and to keep his ways. It's love that motivated God to do what he does. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says similar. It's love that motivated God to do what he does. He doesn't have to do what he does for us. Understanding the Bible, its wisdom, its history, its prophecy will avail us nothing if we have not love. 1 Corinthians 13 is very strong on that. Paul is very emphatic. But there's a purpose to it, brothers and sisters. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why does he say that? Here it is. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his sun to shine, to rise upon the evil and the good, and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why? Because our Father wants us to be like him. Just as it is love that motivates God to do what he does, so he wants his children to be motivated by the same spirit of love. A love that is freely given. It's not a transaction, brothers and sisters. It's not I give you some love and you give me some back and we somehow have like all human experiences of transactions. It's not a transaction in that sense. It's giving more than you expect to receive back. In fact, giving, expecting nothing back. That's what love is. God's purpose remains unchanged. He wants us to be like him. It's declared in Genesis But there's another aspect of love that we don't talk about very much. Love is a choice we make. It's not simply some people are more loving than others. It's a choice. It's a choice you make as a response to God revealing himself to you. He says in 1 John chapter 2, and I know we're all familiar with this, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All that's in the world is the love of the world the father, the love, and it's not of the father. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the father, but it is of the world. And it's sort of that word, that, uh, that concept of uh, of means to be born of. It doesn't come from God. It is born, as it were, of the world. And the world's going to pass away, but he that does the will, again, that emphasis upon will, of, the, of God will abide forever. Demas hath forsaken me, says Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, having loved this present world. You see, love can be manifested in different ways. It can either be manifested in our love of God or our love of the things that relate to this world. So love, it's all about love. But it's who and what we love that determines the course we choose and the outcome of our lives. Is it the world that we strive for Or is it the things of God? There is, brothers and sisters, no middle ground, as we were reminded this morning. So let's move on. 
We put this little mind map up yesterday. This is the process by which we believe, and I'm suggesting to you, now I believe God controls this process. It's not simply some of us are smarter or perhaps more attentive or intuitive, sensitive to the things of God. I believe God controls this process, and we'll talk about that perhaps a little later. Does it matter what we believe or do? On the next slides, we're going to see how both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we are shown that it is important to believe what God has revealed. And we're going to talk about why it's important as well, because we don't often talk about why it's important. In the Old Testament, these are the examples you get, and I haven't picked out all of them, obviously. But if you believe the serpent's lie, which Eve did, it was a small twisting of the word, and it brought horrific consequences. The golden calf, idolatry, brought great disappointment from God and judgment. The Sabbath was broken by a man presumptuously. He was stoned to death. Such a small thing. Korah, Dathan and Abiram rebelled against Moses and against God and brought judgment upon their own house, themselves and their own houses. False prophets are spoken of, and the reason why God despises them is because they presume to speak for God. And God is angry with them for that. Idolatry was punishable by death. Jezebel's false prophets were put to death by Elijah. Jeroboam's sin, a small change to the truth, as it were, was an image of the true worship, and it didn't bring salvation. Samaritan worship was much the same. David's mistake, we read of yesterday, of moving the ark on an ox cart, and Uzzah was struck death, struck dead for a small infringement. Israel perished, it says in the book of Hebrews, because of a lack of faith. You see, it does matter what you believe and what you do in the Old Testament. But what about the new? Well, these are the ones I've gleaned from the New Testament scriptures. If you believe Jesus didn't come in the flesh, you're accursed. If you believe that the resurrection's already passed, you've made shipwreck the faith. If you believe there is no resurrection, well, you've lost all hope and you've overturned the truth and you've said that the apostles are liars. If you believe that justification is by faith alone, because faith without works is dead, you're wrong. Faith must be seen in how we live, as James chapter 2 says. Justification is not by works of law. There's a difference between works of faith and works of law, a subtle difference, but a very important one, which we won't go into right now. If you hate your brother, God considers you to be a murderer like Cain, and you abide in death. Because you are walking a different way to God. If you live a self-centered life in breach of all God's revealed moral principles, you'll die, says the scriptures. So does it matter what we believe? Absolutely. And very powerfully, both in the Old and the New Testament. Now, we're not going to go into those. They are self-evident. But why does it matter? You see, there's a love of the truth and there's a love of lies. Paul warns of the great deceiver who was coming in Thessalonians. 
And those who did not love the truth would be deluded and follow after and love lies. He goes on to say that. He says, because they receive not the love of the truth. Your church, the early Christian church or ecclesia was corrupted, brothers and sisters, by a blending together of the things of God and the philosophies of the world. And they lost the truth because they didn't love the truth. And for that reason, God sent them a strong delusion. He wouldn't even have them near him. In fact, he pushed them away so that their beliefs are so contrary to God, they don't even look like the truth. And they believe the lie. And they had pleasure in unrighteousness and introduced a whole bunch of traditions and concepts that were not of God. Lies and falsehoods are not from God. And in fact, they are quite contrary to his will and purpose. God is a God of truth. Truth is understanding and believing the witness or the testimony of those who God sent. To believe the truth means to practice the truth. And you can look at these references in John. He says that no lie is of the truth. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He that believeth not God hath made God a liar. See, if we don't believe God, we're turning around and we're saying to God, well, you said this, but I think that and I think you're wrong. In fact, you're telling me a lie. Because we don't believe the things that God has testified And the Ecclesia to Ephesus, they are commended because they identified those who taught false things. And he says, and you found them as liars. You didn't compromise the things that you received from me. There's an important warning from the apostles. And it's in 2 Corinthians 11. He says this, he says, I fear, he says, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. There is a certain simplicity in Christ. And that, simplicity, that word simplicity means singleness. And we'll show you that in just a moment. You see, if he that comes preaches another Jesus, then we have not preached. Or if you have received another spirit which we have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. He was desperately worried, brothers and sisters. He was desperately worried for their spiritual well-being. It's not a problem of small consequence. It's a huge problem. It's a life and death issue. When someone says to you, it doesn't really matter what we believe or do, they're telling you a lie. It does. Why is it such a problem? Because God's work is changed. We don't talk about this very much. This is what lies do and corruptions of the truth. They change the work of God. Because God's trying to make us into his image and likeness. But if we accept other teachings that are contrary to God, then another image and likeness is created. The outcome is that the fashioning of our minds and of our characters and of our works will produce a different result. A different type of person and not a son of God, which is what God's endeavouring to create in us. Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. 
it will produce a different result. So if I come back to my little diagram here, which I put up just for ex explanation purposes, truths and lies to mix, are mixed together, adding to and taking from the word of God. It's the serpent's lie. It's Jeroboam's temple. It's Samaritan worship. And it's going to have this outcome for those who walk that way. Many will say to me, in that day, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Because they've moved away from the truth of God. There's another spirit manifested and it's not of God's creation. It's an image of the true. It isn't the true. So if I look at my picture here, there's another concept of God. There's another concept of Jesus. There's another view of man and there's another view of the purpose of God. And it all springs from having the word of God mixed with lies. I'm going to put this now into some um, context. Let's see, I'm going to have a time problem again. So pardon me if I go very quickly. We face two primary dangers today. One is, apart from the world at large, the first is the evangelical movement. They claim to believe God's word as their singular authority. They claim to bring you a personal relationship with God they claim to preach the gospel of Christ and to save people. And they are often honest, dedicated, enthusiastic and nice individuals. I like them. And I'm sure you do too. But we must not ignore this situation, brothers and sisters, but rather understand the issues at stake by clearly enunciating and practicing our core beliefs. Although we can agree with them on many issues and even at times admire their dedication, the real issue is one of belief or teaching, which is what the word doctrine means. It means teaching. Their teachings are different. They're contrary to the scripture. They are astray on most of our core te the things we've identified as core teachings. They have an unbalanced and unscriptural view of the Jesus God focus in their worship. They therefore misunderstand the nature of Christ's sacrifice we talked about yesterday. They do not preach the whole gospel, but only a part of it. They misunderstand the spirit and how the spirit works. And we're going to talk about that later, of course. Their worldview is heavily focused on this world. Now, I'll give you a little example of this. This is one I'm quite sensitive to. They misread some very simple yet key references. And this is the one I got saved once in a Pentecostal church I could tell you about. It was very interesting. They use references like this, Acts chapter 2, Romans 10, verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Heard that? And what they say is, all you've got to do is say, Lord, save me, and you will be saved. Because that's what that reference is saying, they think. But is it? What's the key word in there, brothers and sisters? It's this word here that I've highlighted. You see, the gospel... And you think about it, before the times of the apostles went forth to the Gentiles was primarily a Jewish teaching. It was primarily, if you wanted to come into salvation, you had to become an Israelite to become an heir of the promises. You had to align yourself with that nation. There came a change in Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes into the house of Cornelius and God pours his Holy Spirit directly upon Gentiles. And now it was whosoever... 
That's what that reference means. It means the focus here is the key word is this, whosoever. There is no difference, he goes on to say in the previous verse, in verse 12 of Romans 10, there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is over all is rich and all that call upon him. Now the concept of calling upon the Lord is an Old Testament principle. There's some references there. Back in Genesis, Abraham called upon the name of the Lord and so did Elijah when he brought fire down upon the sacrifice upon Mount Carmel. They misuse references like this, which talk about anybody can have a close relationship with God if they draw near to him and they turn it into a formula for salvation. And it isn't. It's a summary of the, the, the gospel being made available to all people, not based upon race, creed, and any other background, any other background except faith, which is what, of course, Romans 10 is about. So I've got down here, they misuse key references by saying that a person only has to say, Lord, save me, and he or she will be saved. This is to misread the words, the ideas behind those words. The words rather tell us that the word of salvation and the privileges of knowing God are available to all people. The second danger we're facing today, and it's becoming a growing danger, is the problem of faith and reason. Ever since the Enlightenment brought about a new focus on knowledge and learning, an increasing rationalist approach to life has emerged. As a result, the Bible has been under increasing attack, particularly so from those educated in the wisdom of this world. At different times, the Bible has been attacked and criticised because they believe it to be a book of mixed and unknown human authorship, a book of historical and scientific inaccuracies, a book focused on the superiority of Jewish ethnicity, a book that condemns religious toleration and pluralism, a book that condemns homosexuality and free moral choice, a book that condones patriarchal and misogynist viewpoint. I've heard all of that. In summary, a book of stories for an age of ignorance. That's what the enlightened proclaim. Contrary to the conclusions of these enlightened ones, we reject their allegations, brothers and sisters, and rather see the Bible as God's revelation to man, revealing his character, his will, his purpose, as well as what he's done in the past, what he does in the present, and what he promises to do in the future. We believe the apostles, that we believe Jesus and the apostles' testimony that it really is the word of God. We believe that many of these criticisms, uh, sorry, criticisms use or utilise circular reasoning. They assume the conclusion and they bring the evidence which is supported by their preconceived conclusion. The common fault of incorrect reasoning is always built upon a faulty or faulty foundations which are often not fully recognised. Modern reasoning is most mostly based upon a philosophical construct. Now, what that means is you have a, a worldview in which you put all the evidence into to make it fit a particular framework. And it's called philosophical materialism or naturalism. And in its extreme, it's called scientism. And this approach is based on the premise that everything past, present and future must be interpreted using natural or material processes. 
This way of thinking and seeing things produces a rational approach which often gives birth to atheism and it uses statements such as the present is the key to the past, the concept they use um, in science today, as providing the only key to understanding everything. And this influences why many, even those called Christians, now deny the scriptural testimony of miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, or the creation record, or any other record of supernatural action by God, because those things are impossible. An example of this approach I've got here is Thomas Jefferson, a very, very clever person, um, framer of the American Constitution, I think, the third president of the United States, a religious man, but he was a theist or a deist. And what he did was he essentially took his scissors and he got the Bible and he chopped out these bits because they had miracles in them. The virgin birth, eliminated. The resurrection of Christ, eliminated. The Sermon on the Mount, kept. You see, you can subconsciously adopt this form of reasoning and come to the word of God and say, well, I don't quite believe that bit. That's just a bit of story to to back up this other philosophy in the Bible. It's not like that, brothers and sisters. Either the word is true or it's not. I'm going to have to um, go through this very quickly, so please excuse me if I uh, go very fast. I'll just put all these up here. This is what Paul says about the philosophy of the world in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Very important reference. And the concepts behind that teaching. Do we really appreciate the issues and dangers of human wisdom and philosophy? Now, I like philosophy. I read it occasionally because I, I like to see why people think what they think. I was listening to this person here, and this is what she said, a university professor, open education it's called, no educated person in the, last, in the Western world in the last 2,500 years was not influenced by the thoughts and the framework of understanding that Plato provided. Isn't that interesting? But when you come to the New Testament, it's not framed upon the teachings of Plato. But all the other philosophies and all the other education systems are. So be very careful what you hear and compare it to this, and does it ring true to the core teachings of this book? That's the challenge, brothers and sisters, you and I face. Jesus comes to his own, and he's asked his contemporaries, why don't you understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. And he's very crude to them. He says, you're of your father, the devil. He's talking about the serpent in the garden of Eden. He says, you're of, your, you're of the, your father, the devil. The lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He bowed not in the truth because there was no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, you believe me, believe me not. They couldn't understand his word because of a wrong understanding and conception of God and his ways. 
because they were moved and motivated by natural reasoning and thinking. This made them the seed of the serpent, their spiritual father, because they thought and behaved like him. And the outcome of their actions would be shown later in the way they treated Jesus himself. We're going to come back to the serpent a little bit later on in this passage because there's another element to this, a very interesting one I want to show you. Notice the words of the serpent. He uses plausible reasoning. We won't go through this right now. I want to jump ahead here. Wrong thinking is the path to ruin. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Remember the steady down, downwards walk from the truth. He says in Romans chapter 1, they were thankless, they became vain in their imaginations, they professed themselves wise, they became fools, they changed the glory of God into an image of, of corruptible things, God gave them up to uncleanness through their lusts, they changed the truth to a lie, they worshipped and served the, creator more than the, the creature more than the creator, they gave themselves over to gross immorality. Now people who live the truth do the same thing. The process is the same. Christadelphians aren't perfect. In general, there's not enough love. We don't understand love. There's too much emphasis on knowledge and doctrine and law-keeping. Does it really matter if we get everything right? The Bible was written mostly for their times and not for our times. There's so many good Christians in the churches, nice people in society. I've not changed what I believe, but my understanding of the love of God causes me to be more inclusive of these things. Over time, because of change, company and different beliefs, previously held core beliefs, are corrupted one at a time. I've seen this, brothers and sisters. The eventual outcome is that the mind and attitude and behaviour becomes aligned with the new associations and God is abandoned step by step and a new God takes his place. And it's one, it's a form of idolatry where an image of God is honoured in place of God. That's what happens, brothers and sisters, when you abandon the truth. In God's house, God's rules apply. I'll just quickly summarise. I apologise for going over time again. Um, Why do we believe the truth? Because God says it's true. Believing God is God-honouring. It's an expression of faith and trust in him. This faith produces a character like God's. This character should be shown in how we live. We call it God manifestation, that's just our label for it, but that's the principle, it's an undeniable scriptural principle found from start to finish in the scripture. God's character developed in his children, displayed today in our lives, and one day God will make that, cement that in us, that we might be sharers in divine nature. Thank you.